Welcome back to the Geeksman Podcast, where today we're going to be speaking with nerd rock pioneer Kirby Crackle, a.k.a. Kyle Stevens. We're going to be talking to him about his career, opening for Weird Al, and his connection to the MCU. So without further ado, sit back and strap in, because the show is a go. You have my sword, her bow, and her phaser. You have our dragon, her wand. His lightsaber, you have their special dice, her sonic screwdriver. We are united by what we love. We are united by what we love. All right, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Geekspin Podcast. I'm your host, the Cory Geek, and today I am here with Kyle Stevens, otherwise known as Kirby Crackle. Kyle, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. Oh, it's good to have you on. So, obviously, you're a uh, nerd rock performer. I am. Yeah. How long have you been? <laughs> uh, how long have you been performing for? Uh, with Kirby Crackle, I've been performing um, since 2009. Started the band in 2009, uh, and before that, been performing since like uh, 1993. Okay. Well, so long yeah, time. But the the long time, but the nerd sphere didn't happen until. Uh, until Kirby Crackle. Yeah. Uh, how did you get your start in music? Well, um, when I was 13, I was growing up uh, in kind of the the Seattle boom and the Seattle scene with like Soundgarden, Nirvana, and Pearl Jam. And um, uh, I, I wasn't really a fan of music growing up necessarily. I liked the radio, but I didn't like have favorite records or anything. And then uh, for my 12th birthday, I received a cassette copy of Motley Crue, Girls, Girls, Girls. And uh, he, he nods knowingly. Yeah. And uh, Metallica, Ride the Lightning, and um, uh, Weird Al Yankovic. So I, I like to think maybe those three things kind of set the path. So what made you gravitate towards nerd rock? Well, you know, I was always putting um, uh, little references in my songs, uh, especially a couple of years prior to Kirby Crackle starting, talking about the White Queen or something about being made of adamantium in my bands that were of the non-nerd rock sphere. And uh, I just thought it'd be interesting to to do a, a record that was based around the comics and the culture that I love, because I'd, I'd heard references in rap songs, but I hadn't really heard songs that were like an entirety from the perspective of a Spider-Man, for example, mm-hmm. or, or Wolverine. And then when they were done, they were kind of done like a jokey way. Not that that's bad, but I was just trying to think, you know, what what is my lane in that? And so that's why I did Kirby Crackle. Who would you consider some of your musical influences? Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me, good question. I'd say, you know, a lot of the Seattle people grew up with, um, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Foo Fighters, um, Sean Colvin, Lyle Lovett. I like, you know, I like the folk acoustic thing equally with how much I love uh, rock and roll. Uh, when did you actually play your first show with Kirby Crackle and where? First show with yeah, good question. Um, first show with Kirby Crackle was uh, 2009 at the Comic Stop, now Subspace Comics in Seattle. It's really close to where I live still. And it was just kind of like a big experiment and called some of our friends down. And, and I don't think they had done any kind of shows there prior. And I was just you know thinking like, well, this will be a good testing ground acoustically. Because I recorded the full album by myself, drums and bass and everything, programmed all the drums. Didn't have a live band yet because it was all about seeing how much I wanted to invest in it based on if people were enjoying it. Like, was this just for me, you know, or was this something that, that everyone would dig? So why did you choose the name Kirby Crackle? 
Well, my friend Brian Meredith, who owns Subspace Comics, um, <clears throat> talking about the show that we performed there, he said to me years prior, as I was just you know telling him about my non-nerd rock songs at that time, and referencing you know the White Queen or 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 instead of saying "Get on out of here," I'm gonna bamf on out of here in an old song, uh, reference to Nightcrawler for people who don't know. Um, and and he said, if you ever do this, he's like, you need to call it Kirby Crackle. That needs to be the name. And I was like, okay. And I didn't have a better name. And so when it was time to name it, I was like, oh, okay, Brian. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, the history of the band. How were you first received? Yeah. Um, it was like a, you know, if we want to go back to that first show at at the at Subspace Comics, then the comic shop, it was just a lot of close friends. It wasn't really advertised. It was just put the word out and like, you know, 20 to 35 people we knew came. Um, and it was a lot of kind of snickering and just kind of a lot of little laughing and then not really understanding, I think, looking back, if it was okay to laugh because the the words were comedic, but it was delivered in a very straight man way, right? Yeah. And so that's, I mean, there's not, there wasn't really a wink. It was an emphasis on earnest, I think. And so I, I don't know if people really knew what to how to respond to it. And I remember saying, you can laugh if you want to. And then it was like, ah. Oh. It was kind of like this collective sigh in the room happened. So then I realized I needed to make sure people knew that it it was it was not a joke, but it was something that people could be in on the references with. And it's okay to smile and have fun. Like it's music to feel good with. So right. <clears throat> the first couple times I did a show was just me. Um, and a lot of guys that I had been playing in other bands with we had kind of taken a break from those bands, and and I decided that I wanted to play uh, a show at the Showbox, which is a big place in Seattle. Um, and it was a summer concert, and I said, let's get the full band together. Let's do a full band show, because this is how I want to record album two. And we did the show, and that's where we debuted Ring Capacity before it was even recorded or anything. Um, and I remember my f- people who came to show were like, holy shit, we didn't know that you guys could rock. I'm like, well you know my other bands and you thought we rocked, so I don't know why you didn't think this would, but it was not delivered initially in that way, right? right? And so when the second record, E For Everyone, came out, we had a budget then and, and saved up to make the rock record that I wanted uh, the self-titled record to be from 2009. But I, again, it was like, I didn't know how much I wanted to invest in it if it was only going to be something for me. Um, and so we made like the big rock record with you know Vault 101 and On and On and Ring Capacity, Going Home. And again, people were like, holy shit, we didn't know you guys could record like rock, rock songs. I'm like, yeah, man, I just didn't have the money to do it then. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was a it was always a continual surprise, which was fun because even though I knew we could, you know, play fast, loud and hard songs, people didn't know. So it was like this little surprise reveal thing that was unintended, but I think worked in our benefit because it kind of got another little wave of interest, I think, when that second record came out. I've yet to find my place I'm guarding 2814 I don't know why it's chosen me But from the corner of my eye I catch a glimpse of evil light The fear of 
anything A purple man obsessed with me So lost to the dark and it's now extinct From any good it once possessed Pledge to the oath now laid to rest No time for doubt, no quick eject Don't give in to fear like my father said Do you record at home or have you uh, done some studio work? Yeah, so all our most of our records, um, all the records that um, have the art by Jim Mafood, my longtime uh, collaborator for art design, those are all recorded at the same place um, or by the same producer, excuse me, Don Gunn in Seattle, Washington, at his place called The Office. It's like a 20 foot by 15 foot studio, and it's not big enough to hold all of us, so we take different turns playing in there. Um, the one place we recorded that was different was the Sounds Like You record from 2013, and that was recorded at um, the studio owned by Pearl Jam Stone Gossard in the Fremont area of Seattle. And that record sounds a little, if people think it sounds a little different, we all played in one room instead of what we usually do is myself and my drummer, we sit down um, after the whole band has rehearsed, right? We all know our parts. He plays the drum beat, the drums. I'll play scratch guitar, which means not a recording we're going to keep. And I'll sing along with it. So mm -hmm. we know front to back, we all got through the same. I know that we didn't skip any parts. And that's kind of our like our bone structure. And then one by one, we'll layer bass on top of that. Then we'll layer my guitar, then my lead guitar's guitar, and then singing and vocals. And that's how we do most of our stuff. Um, often, though, especially in the last you know, 15 months, I do a lot of stuff here and then sometimes send it over to my producer to mix. Right. But uh, yeah, and, and that just has evolved as my studio at home has evolved a little bit. And though I do like to record at home, I, I really do enjoy not having to worry about pressing buttons and editing and everything like I do when I do it by myself. Yeah. I just kind of want to have fun. And it's about, you know, even though you're paying for it then versus at home, it's about the hang and it's about collaboration which i really enjoy do you write uh, all your own songs or do you uh, ever collaborate on them i do i write all my own songs um it's often 
presented to the band saying, here's a song front to back, here's my ideas, let's try the ideas, and then I'm open to what you guys want to contribute to that. Because I do enjoy that. And at the same time, I want to know, like, okay, does this recipe taste like I thought it would? And I, and I kind of want to hear it with everybody. So it's taken us a while to figure that out. Um, but, you know, I think, like, really six months before this whole thing started, like, we really started figuring it out. So hopefully we'll be able to pick that up again at some point. Uh, but, yeah, everyone's different and everyone's fun. And it's, you know, there's something that happens, I think, in a group of people when you play for a long time together where it gets easier to write songs because you all kind of know what your lane is. Like you know what you're good at and you know what you can add to that. And we can also, you can kind of anticipate what other people think is cool. You know, I think my drummer can anticipate what I think is cool and I can almost anticipate what he's going to do just because we played so much together. Um, The downside of that is you can get stuck in kind of a rut with that or you can get stuck in a predictable pattern. So that's why I think it's going to be interesting you know, when we get back to it is, is how have people changed? How's their musical styles changed? And how can we kind of bring that to kind of refresh the soup? So what's your uh, creative process like? Um, I'll sit down with a guitar usually, and I'll have like a riff or a grouping of chords that sounds good. And I'll just kind of sing nonsense over it. And I'll just kind of, you know, I, I don't think, you know, years ago, now I wouldn't care if people heard me do it years ago. I would have definitely not have liked that because <laughs> it's just kind of repeating sounds and words and it's more about inflection. And then I'll listen to that. And then once I have that rhythmic structure, I'll figure out what I want to say. And sometimes it will be hard to change whatever random words came in because I'll just be so used to it. And sometimes that'll be like, well, that's what that song is. It feels like it should say that. And so that's, you know, that's my favorite part of music is finding melodies and, and often then fantasizing what that will be like to play live. Right. I think when you're younger, you do a bunch of songs. You do like, you know, you write a seven-minute song and you think people are going to want to hear this. It's so epic. And then you do it and you say, that's not good live. No one wants to. It's not, you're not Jethro Tull or Rush, right? It's like save that for people who can make that interesting. Um, and now maybe I've swung the other way where my songs are a little too short, but also there's something cool about, you know, don't bore us, get to the chorus and make people want to hear it again. Right. Um, so you've had quite a uh, storied career since the time that you picked up. Um, I saw that you've opened for Weird Al. I did, yeah. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so that was at uh, at the Calgary Stampede, <clears throat> excuse me, where... Um, we were often guests of the Calgary Expo there, and they said they wanted to do a concert, and they were talking with Weird Al, and if Weird Al played, would we want to open if we got approved? Right. And no-brainer, hell yes, we want to do that. And then we found out it was in the stadium, right, the Calgary Stampede, and that's a big-ass room, and we've never done anything like that, but of course, when you grow up as a little rock dude, that's one of the heights of, that's like bucket list stuff, right? Right. So... It was really exciting, and it was like a um, the whole lead up to it was almost like a celebration of all all that we've been lucky to do up until that point. Even though it only had been three and a half years uh, at that point, that was a nice break in the convention traveling experience 
to be like, oh, this feels like play. Like this doesn't feel work. Like 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 I'm not even going to be nervous about this. Like I just want to enjoy this as much as I can. And of course, if I said we weren't nervous, that's bullshit. Because if you play a arena, you're going to be nervous, right? But it was just one of these things where I think all of us uh, were trying to be very present in the experience because you know you don't know when you're going to be able to do that again. Um, and we did the sound check, and it was really odd to hear again the room so big you echoing back to yourself. And it sounded a little different once humans were in there, right? But uh, it, it, as a performer at that point who had been you know, <clears throat> singing for 20 years at that point, it was like a brand new experience where I had no muscle memory to re- rely on. I just had to get used to what this is. And we didn't have in-ear monitors. They were all from wedges. And I think when you play big environments like that, everyone has in-ear monitors, right? Because yeah. if you're moving around everywhere, you gotta hear what's going on. Um, and so I was stuck on my ex so to hear myself and that was great. Uh, but it was just really magical and Weird Al came out during the, uh, the sound check and you could tell it was him cause he's tall and his curls were all wet. You know what I mean? And yeah. he had like just taken a shower seat like, and he had a Hawaiian shirt on. He's like, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then he was gone. And, uh, it was just a good experience. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, no kidding. What was yeah. it like standing on the stage and I guess staring out over that crowd? <clears throat> um, it was a lot of people looking at us trying to figure out if they liked us. I could tell, you know, it was, yeah. it was like arms crossed trying to look. And I'd like to think by the end we had won uh, a good chunk of them over. Um, I'm sure plenty of people were like, okay, we're now get up here. But we were like the rock band. We were like a, we were like a fast rock band and he was who he is, right? But I think yeah. the weirdness um, uh, supported each other and you know I did something that I think you're probably not supposed to do as an opening band which is jump off the stage and run through the crowd but I like literally <laughs> never knew what I'm gonna do that again so I, so I did I, I was like I'm gonna do it my, my band's like don't do that man don't do that I'm like I don't know I don't know and then the spirit got me and and then my mom was in the front row and my friends came I think I high-fived my dad and I was just like just throw the kitchen sink at it yeah, and 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 see what happens, but you know it was half an hour, and we played, you know, some of our songs that we wanted to hear in a big room. We played some of the songs that we knew were songs that we needed to play uh, for people who wanted to hear them, who were there for us. So it was a mix of self-serving and fan service. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs>
shit off stage. Weird Al will be right up. Thank you. So you've done also eight international <coughs> tours. Uh, where are some of the places that you played? Where are some of the weird places that you've played? Yeah, um, so we've done a lot of Comic-Con touring. Uh, out of the states, Canada, of course, we have a, a lot of people in Canada who enjoy us, and that's been so fun. Um, and then we've been to Australia four times, five times, four times, um, and that's always uh, the silliest experience because we're just around for the ride. I shouldn't say silly; it's really fun. It's not predictable, is what I'm trying to say. You're just—it's kind of like this caravan of carnies from city to city. Um, <clears throat> you show up. And you don't really know, well, you know who's going to be there, but, you know, there's there's artists there, there's movie star people, there's, we're usually the one music group. And as opposed to the, the conventions in the States where you're kept apart from celebrity talent, like there, everyone's just in the same boat, right? right. It's like, I imagine it like in Europe, you know, when Sting goes to the bar and they're like, you're you're nothing. We know what your dad did. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. it's just like we're all the same, right? And that's the kind of vibe that it's like when you're there, and um, you know you're treated very very well. And then on off days you go to a koala sanctuary, or you'll go uh, you know an hour and a half off to um, I think it's called Rottenness Island where the koakas live. If you're familiar with koakas, right? They're the little animals that look like they're smiling all the time. I didn't go there. My band went. And they said literally it was just like, okay, go around the island. And you're just biking around the island. And all of a sudden this huge pack of these little magical Disney creatures will run out. <laughs> and they all look like they're smiling. And you can get on the ground and take pictures with them. And it's just the weirdest thing. And I, I missed out. So hopefully if we go again, I can do that. Uh, but, yeah, just, you know, we've played shows at arenas. We've done shows where it was in a panel room at a convention. And we open the door and someone says, all right, hope this is good. And it's literally two mic stands that are broken, taped <laughs> together. And one time, I shit you not, there was like a broomstick that was tied to that. And so, you know, it's, we just joke around. We're like, all right, this is Nerd Rock Navy SEALs time. You just got to make it work, man. You got <laughs> to work this, even if you got to retape your mic stand in the middle. But, um, you know, a lot of these conventions, uh, had never had musical guests so they were nervous about what that would be because i think in the 90s and maybe early 2000s they would have bands and then it would be more of a fan grab it would be people just looking for a place to play not really part of the community right right so that's something that that has been an issue that a lot of what we do is education like we're not going to trash your place we're not going to swear we're not we're going to make this as family friendly trust us and then they roll the dice and they have a good experience and then we can come back. Yeah. Cool. So a little bit of everything to answer your question lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I guess recently you've also written music and recorded songs for Disney for the Gardens of the Galaxy cartoon. How did that yeah, about come five out? years ago. Um, well, we have a good relationship with um, Joe Quesada, who is the former editor-in-chief of Marvel. <clears throat> He's a chief creative officer now for... Um, for Marvel and Marvel Studios. And 
he works on lots of different things, and he told me um, about the summer. It was like the summer before Guardians came out, the movie. He said, hey, um, we have this movie coming out, and people are going to like it because it's not characters people know about, but it's all the music is what ties you to Earth, right? The classic rock and the, yeah. the new wave hits and the disco hits. And he said, so there's going to be this cartoon coming out, and we want to maybe have people do songs that sound like the 70s and and would that something be would that be something you're interested in i'm like hmm, let me think about it for like three milliseconds yes i would definitely like to definitely like to do that so time goes by six months go by <clears throat> the uh, the guardians of the galaxy movie came out my wife and i went down there for the premiere which was really fun we felt so lucky to be able to do that and then it becomes the biggest movie in the world and then they said hey you know that thing that we asked you to do uh, you can't do that anymore um, because it's going to be like a big bands thing, like Nickelback and those guys, right? right. So he's like, they're going to do those songs. Like, well, shit. Okay. Well, that was fun. That was fun to play pretend that was going to happen. And then six months later, we get a call again and said, hey, do you remember that thing where we were going to ask you to do that? And it's just like playing with my heart back and forth, yeah. back and forth. <laughs> and so he goes, you can really do it. Um, we need three songs and we want them to sound like the 70s. And so it was at a time when we weren't working on a record and we weren't really at conventions. It was like the off season. And so it was a really fun, like laser focus that I needed. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we did is we got together and I like researched all these 70 songs and like, what's the, what's the vibe? What's something that we could do that sounds like us, but also people wouldn't know it's us. And then we went back to the um, before mentioned studio, the office where we do all our records in Seattle. And we did all the 70s stuff. Like we played through 70s mics, like we played, 70s style drum sets we played with old gear to like really get that sound uh we even put dampening um units on the drums because if you listen to drums in the 70s it's not like boom 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 it's like flicking paper right right and so we just dampened the shit out of that stuff and did our best to sound uh accurate and so we put those we gave them those songs and two of them made the, um, I think it's like season two, episode one, and then season two, episode seven or something. And what the funny part is, is like we put so much effort into those songs, but then where they put it in the muse- in the show is like way, way, way in the background mm-hmm. on like a jukebox for like 10 seconds. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it's like almost like distorted, like it's like an old timey kind of thing like this, right? So... Those songs, we don't own them, and I keep uh, I keep hoping someday they will put them out, but people can find them on YouTube. I wish I could share it with people other than that, but you know we can't do anything with those. But right. yeah, it was a, it was a really cool experience, and uh, then we're part of the Marvel universe, you know, which is awesome. Um, and someone said, "What's your favorite band?" And Star Star Lord said, "Kirby Crackle," which was really cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> and and as fun as it was to do that when it was released, I don't think I was like freaking out about it as much as I would have or excited because I had just, uh, we had had our baby like a week earlier. So Mm -hmm. I was like deep in the weeds on that and I wasn't processing really what was happening, right? (laughs) But then a couple of years later I went back and I was like, oh man, this is really cool. I'm really happy we got to do this. That's awesome. So aside (laughs) from uh, Weird Al, who are some of the other celebrities that your careers brought you in contact with? Um, let me see. Um, a lot of people like that we've met during the Australia tours, like Ray Park, Darth Maul, right? Right. Um, 
different people who were, uh, let me try to remember some names right now. Um, Terry Hatcher, we hung out with last time we were there. <laughs> she was really fun. Um, let me see here. My, my favorite, my favorite though, has been when they bring like old school Marvel artists and writers out because that's the stuff I grew up on. Yeah. Right. And so those are the guys like I'm most, uh, the men and women that I'm most nervous to meet. And then what happens is you just kind of, you know, everyone goes walking to lunch or they go on a day trip and you're just, everyone's walking, you turn into a casual conversation with people. And, and eventually after a couple hours, I'm like, so what was it like to write wet works for image when that came out? Please tell me, you know, what was it like, uh, to draw the appearance of Bishop in X-Men number? Da, 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 da. And, then, and I almost, and I feel like my fantasy is they know like, all right, this is coming at some point. This dude's like a fanboy, and <laughs> he's trying to be a professional, but okay. Chris Claremont was there one time. We talked to him about all that stuff, because Jim Lee X-Men, yeah. you know, that that time is my favorite. Um, he was really nice, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to think if there's some other people I, I've kind of kind of met, but yeah, those are the ones I'm really most excited about. So obviously you, uh, you collect comics. Uh, what are yes. some, some of your favorite titles? See, favorite titles. Oh, I, if we were, if this was a video thing, I would show you the rack right over there. Um, I have all my favorite titles on the rack, which are like, you know, from a certain time or like I keep them up there as kind of my um, reminder of like what's really like the core lane of what I want to do with Kirby Crackle. Yeah. Um, I love the early image stuff. Um, of course, like the X Men runs when I was like 13, 14, and like 90 to 94 it was awesome. Um, really digging into some Wildcats. Uh, that were the multiple series of Wildcats they've had. Um, what's up there right now? Punisher, Savage Dragon. I still read Savage Dragon off and on. Still read Spawn off and on. Um, but a lot of what I do now is I do comicsology stuff, or I'll, I'll buy stuff on there. And and you know, with all the traveling that we did, it was just very convenient to have all my comics right there. Right. Yeah, Walking Dead. I was a lifer of Walking Dead from the beginning to the end. Invincible. Uh, I really enjoyed the TV show. That was really fun and refreshing. I thought. Did you see that? Oh yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Like, I was awesome. just surprised. I kept being surprised all the time. I was like, they're, they're doing that? Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good time to be a nerd right now. It's a good time to be a nerd. And, and it's like, I was thinking about this the other day that, like, nerd culture is world culture now. Yeah. Right? Like, I think, like, when we started Kirby Crackle, it was at a very different place. It was where, you know, I think, what, Iron Man 2 was just coming out or something like that, or Iron Man had just come out. Um and they're starting to talk about The Walking Dead, like it was starting to get filmed, and you know conventions weren't selling out in two hours. You know when they were when they went on sale. It's a, I think nerds. I'll, I'll speak for myself, obviously here. Like we go through waves of being immersed in the culture, especially since it's gone really, really mainstream. Yeah. And so we have a song called "Geek Culture Is Dead," and I don't. And it's it's more kind of just to kind of have a, a phrase to say that. Sounds cool, but hints at the feelings that I have about it where mm-hmm. um, it's not dead. It's just so, so different. And it's for everybody, which is great. And at the same time, I feel like sometimes I miss some of the innocence of that earlier time. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, but oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry. No, it's just lately I've been surprised at some of the choices that have been uh, made, especially when it comes to uh, Marvel movies. You know, mm. I never thought that we were going to see Howard the Duck again. Yeah. I never thought that we were going to see live-action uh, Rocket Raccoon. <clears throat> yeah. 
So, you know, it's just they continually surprise me now uh, that they're actually going after some of the more obscure characters in yeah. both, you know, the Marvel and the DC universe. It's never been done, right? It's never yeah. been done. And it's just this continual soap opera that goes and goes and goes and goes, which is not so different from a soap opera, I guess, except it's like a soap yeah. opera with capes. Uh, and and obviously lots of differences. But, um, yeah, I love that they've, they've intermingled the universes between TV and film and... And, you know, just the other day we we're talking about like, okay, so you have film and you have TV and games, obviously. And it's just so fascinating that if you want to look at the other major food group of media, which is music, right? Like, why hasn't that gone over the tipping point yet? And I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, that I just don't think there are enough groups kind of doing this. You right. know, there's 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 rock groups, there's rap groups, there's filk, there's folk, there's everything. But but I think you know that's what also is inspiring to me that you know the the nerd music sphere has in no way reached the top of the mountain of possibility. Yeah. But I think that's also going to take you know a lot of participation at at a level that maybe we don't see now. And you could say there's many reasons for that. Um, and one that someone said the other day that was very interesting is that, you know, people in my age group and, and slightly younger, like you played video games, right? But they're, it, like being in a band or being a rapper or writing songs, like that was still like your go-to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, so there's like, and one didn't replace the other. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. But, you know, I think there's, you know, if we want to call it like generation rock band in a, in a way, or, or like that year where rock band was really big, right? Four to yeah. five years. Like I wonder often how many times people who would have written songs just in general kind of played rock band instead. Because right. it kind of kind of s- scratches the same itch, you know? Yeah. And it's more just like, I think it's just fascinating to think about. Like in retrospect, it's going to be really interesting to see okay what is the generation you know who didn't have rock band like were they playing music more you know are, are people going to think like you know are people not going to play video games as much are they going to be in bands is it going to be are, are the, the kids were worried about being obsessed with phones now are they is it not even going to be a thing for them 15 years from now because it's just like oh it's just a phone whatever where yeah. to people my age you know it's like you have one foot in analog and one foot in the digital world and I think that's a cool thing because you're able to do, do do both. But, you know, when I think different generations find different things flashy and cool. And I just am always interested of how that will evolve. Right.
how has COVID affected you as a performer? You got another hour to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it has not been fun. It has affected me as a performer. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it, to me, it's like the big blur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a time, I know there was a time early on where this was very, feeling very temporary. And so everyone did their kind of COVID song, right? And I did Corinne which was a song about being in your house, but it sounds like a Billie Eilish jam or whatever. And yeah. I purposely wanted to make it fun and <clears throat> did a video where, you know, my hair's super long now, but then it was like an inch longer. It was like, oh my gosh, I need a haircut, right? Just like, <laughs> the, you look back at your posts or your Facebook memories or the way people talked about it. And it's just like, dude, we were living in a fantasy land of thinking that this was going to last like two or three months. So it didn't really affect me as much as a performer in the beginning because I just pivoted to doing live streams and right. writing jokey stuff about the experience, stuff I would never write now because it's not jokey, you know, at least to me anymore. Um, and so I think what it did for a lot of us is, is it made us look at, okay, slow down, which is something that performers aren't very good at because we're always mm-hmm. trying to hustle. Um, how do you want to still connect with your fan base? And maybe that's putting out more music. Maybe that is doing more live streams. And I do like doing live streams. I think I realized, though, that the every other day thing was kind of getting a little wearing on me. And I, when I show up for my fans to play, like I want to show up feeling good. I don't want it to ever be something where it looks like I don't want to be doing it that day. Or I don't want people to have to show up and feel like they... They have to be there to support me after or want to support me after like nine months of that, right? So yeah. my live streams have slowed down, but when I do it, I try to make it a little more special. Um, it's been a shift for my music. You know, I put out a record. Well, I know you were listening to that the other day I saw, the, the, yes. this great pause record. Thank you. Um, and it's kind of... Those songs were a collection of songs I put out for Patreon where it goes in the order of when they were written. And you can kind of hear the different stages of this whole experience, I think, as it as it goes on um, to, you know, the feelings of disbelief to holy shit to anger to, you know, being resigned to yeah. the experience. Um, and so I think it will be very interesting to see what people go back to just in general in life, but what they go back to in terms of performances. Like I, I've written music now in a different way. Cause I haven't been playing with my band, you know, like I have a young child. Um, I went from, you know, being dual breadwinner in the house to being full-time dad. Cause I'm not able to do my job. Yeah. Uh, and that's been both like a beautiful experience, but also really, really hard as it has been for everybody. Right. In different ways. So, I'm excited to get back on stage, and I think I have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, my intention, I think, when performing will be a little different. Like, I think right. I'm going to really try to make each show count in a very unique, different way when I, when I do it. And really know that, you know, stuff like performing can be taken away from you like that, which, of course, we've never experienced, except if you take it away from yourself. So I... And I, I have mixed feelings now when I see, you know, 
as a performer, I, I feel like, you know, I see a lot of people planning tours or doing tours right now. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, you know, I think I have this fantasy that I wish we could all go back to it at the same time. But I know we all have different experiences that are happening right now. And people's mental health and financial health all have different needs. So I hope it works out for everybody. And, you know, we're not jumping the gun too quick on shows, but I'm still going to wait a little bit before doing that. Yeah, probably a good idea. <laughs> uh, you so, think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what are some of the major <clears throat> conventions that you can be found at? Um, major conventions. Well, I don't know in the aftertimes, but if I have my way, um, it'll be Emerald City Comic Con, um, New York Comic Con, uh, after parties at San Diego, which we did a lot of, even after we stopped exhibiting at San, Di- San Diego, we did a lot of, uh, after party events. Um, and, uh, you know, before, before everything, I was doing a focus on smaller shows, um, smaller shows that were still into presenting a musical experience to people. Um, as we know, as conventions have grown, it's harder to compete with after hour stuff, like especially at San Diego. You know, for example, do you want to do a concert on the same night that Weezer's giving a free concert on the steps right. or there's a Walking Dead experience two blocks from you? Like, mm, no, I try, I've, I've gone down that road to try to compete with that. And I think, you know, when you have sponsorship or you're part of a larger organization with someone at our level, then that makes sense. But other than that, I think, you know, focusing on markets, like maybe it's not San Diego uh, Comic-Con, but maybe it's the show six months later that's a little smaller, and they have something where they want to put on an experience for their fans, and maybe it's just two different experiences that night. Maybe it's like a Kevin Smith thing, and maybe it's like a Kirby Crackle thing. And so that, you know, that before this whole experience was my focus, and I think that's going to be what I will still try to be doing. Right but also open to cool stuff wherever it is. So what's next for the band? What's next for the band? Well, um, you know, hopefully uh, we can start practicing again when things feel a little safer here still. Uh, I have a young child who, uh, you know, I'm vaccinated, but my kid can't get vaccinated yet. Mm-hmm. And this was, a, you know, our, our, uh, our practice space is basically in my house. So um, I'm prepping some new music. I really hope to have a new album by the fall. Um, and kind of, you know, also some things in the works that are maybe a reintroduction to Kirby Crackle um, in some kind of compilation form that okay. that I haven't done before or haven't done for a long time. And there's been a lot of new music since then too. So I kind of like having like a little line in the sand with that. And then though not a new sound, like very a very different production style I started doing here um, with like samples and and more beat driven, um, I guess you could say like danceable stuff. Okay. Like stuff that, the stuff that I really am enjoying that feels different and it, I feel good about it because it makes me feel like how I felt when the first Kirby Crackle record came out where I didn't know if anyone was gonna dig it, but I knew that I really liked it. Yeah. Um, so that's where, my, that's where my thoughts are at the moment. And where can people find you online? Yeah, they can find me at uh, kirbycracklemusic.com. Um, all over Twitter and Instagram at, at Kyle Stevens Music. And then uh, I have a Patreon. And so that's been going on when it hits August for seven years now. 
Wow. Right? And I've put out two songs every single month, exclusive to the fan club. Um, and occasionally, after four months, I'll put something out in some kind of compilation form. But, you know, do the math on that. Two songs every uh, every month for seven years. So that's... <laughs> That's been a lot of songs. Um, can I play them all? No, but <laughs> can. But do members have them? And do people have people stuck around? Yes. So I'm very thankful that uh, the patrons are there. And uh, yeah, if if you're a hardcore Kirby Crackle fan and you want new music every month, that's basically like a nerd rock journal. I do weird songs about yogurt, whatever stuff <laughs> stuff that's not making the record, but it's there for you. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap that up there. So, right on. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for coming out. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me, Corey. I want to extend my thanks to Kyle Stevens for coming out. And if you want to find out more about him and his music, you can uh, visit his website at kirbycracklemusic.com or visit his pages on Spotify, Bandcamp, and wherever else you download your music from. That's it for this week. This is Corey Geek signing out.